Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are delighted to welcome you to today's episode of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Our signature is featuring women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who lead lives that illustrate inspiring ways to learn, contribute, and make a difference as we age. The 30-minute conversation with our guest will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. And today we're pleased to introduce you to Patricia Novick, age 72. Patricia, or Patty, brings decades of experience as a social justice pioneer, which we will learn more about during our conversation with her. Patty is the Reverend Patricia Novick, an ordained minister who holds a doctorate in clinical psychology. She's an award recipient for her activities to combat discrimination and to advance social justice. She consults with numerous Chicago-based organizations from literacy to healthcare. And currently, Patty is a fellow at DePaul's Egan Office of Urban Education and a Community Partnerships and a Research Fellow at the Field Museum. Now, now you have just a glimpse into the rich social activist life that Patty has led and continues to lead. I had the privilege of working with Patty on the first holistic health program offered at bachelor's and graduate levels here at the School for New Learning a couple of decades ago. And I have great admiration for her vision, her commitment, her passion for social justice. So welcome, Patty, and let's begin the conversation. Oh, I'd like to have you start with your kind of the beginnings of the stirrings of your work in social justice work, if you would. I'm a child of the 60s. When uh, Dr. King came to Chicago, um, I had seen television of civil rights workers in the South. And uh, my first job that I had was I was on the northern staff of SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization. Um, I have a sweatshirt which says LCLC staff, of which I'm very proud. Um, and so really that was the beginning. And directly working with Martin uh, made a tremendous impact on my life and the choices that I've made. You know, today I'm the Reverend Dr. Patricia Novick, and that's no, uh, in no small part uh, of what I learned and wanted to model out of Dr. King's life and his commitment to social justice community for all of us. So that was as a teenager. Yes. And I know that it, um, you also became then active in other movements, related movements, the women's movement, for, for example. You tell us about that because you've done some really pioneering work in the for the women's movement. Um, <clears throat> I taught the first course on women's studies in 1968 at Roosevelt University called an interdisciplinary approach to the women field, and many of the women leaders like uh, Joe Freeman and uh, Naomi Weinstein and uh, Heather Booth um, came and participated in that program and led to the development of a whole series of courses on women's studies at the university. I was a member of Jane, um, the underground, underground Women's Abortion Counseling Service here in Chicago, 
Uh, currently, there are nine films being made about Jane, mm -hmm. and uh, I think at least two or three books that have been written um, on the subject. Uh, and clearly, it's an issue that we need to address now. And there are women all over the country looking to create, replicate Jane, uh, given the current crisis mm -hmm. around abortion issues. Um, I was a member of the Women's Liberation Union here in Chicago, um, and working on women's issues of discrimination, of poverty, of sex uh, discrimination in a whole uh, range of areas. Um, and I was also a member of um, NOW during that period of time. Um, <clears throat> and I was one of the founders of what was called Chicago Opportunities for Women, which led to what became uh, the Midwest Women's Center. Mm -hmm. um, so those were some of the, so, so my life, that early part of my life as a civil rights activist and a feminist was the fabric uh, of my life and my, my community. And uh, that happened on a daily basis. One example that I was just thinking about walking over here was um, we used to drive our car downtown and when the downtown secretaries were walking, going out to lunch and they were being catcalled and by construction workers, we would pick them up and we would drive them mm. um, every day. Some group of us would do that uh, at lunch. And then uh, we sat in restaurants like Stouffer's downtown, uh, about half a block from here, because when we were discriminated against, weren't allowed in, we would get mm. picked up and taken away by the police. We did that on a routine basis. I think what was particularly important about the women's movement here in Chicago was that we tended to cross class and race lines, which was not true in places like Los Angeles and New York to the extent it was true here. And uh, we were also extremely collaborative. So in our Rolodex, when the press called, whose ever name was up next was the one who talked to the press. And that was the principle, it didn't matter. You know, there were you know, 75 names. If your name was up next, you were the person who spoke. And we operated that way. So and, can you say yeah. more about that, Patty? Because I know that in, in general, the women's movement had some divisions around class and race. Were you part of that leadership then that, that made this a collaborative effort uh, in intentionally crossing the, those, uh, those borders? Um, I was a member, and I, really, I think we talked about ourselves as members. Mm -hmm. um, the, the California and New York folks, when they would visit us, would say, oh, you're all so much nicer you know, <laughs> than, than we are. There weren't the kind of, of divisions. And given the uh, organizations you know, from now, which was m more sort of um, conventional than the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, we would collaborate uh, around activities. And um, there was a burgeoning African-American women's group. They were part of the union. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how it happened, but we, uh, unlike other parts of the country, had a very diverse group. Mm -hmm. And uh, it may have something to do with the geography of Chicago, you know, communities that touch but don't quite interpenetrate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Hyde Park. There were women in Woodlawn who we collaborated with. And I think that connection cross community is what made that possible. Mm -hmm. But I have the photographs that I have of that, of that period of the Women's Union was a highly diverse group. Mm -hmm. When you and I talked recently, you commented, it was kind of a, a quick comment about how forms of protest have changed. 
Yes. And could you shed some light on that for us? Well, as part of SCLC, um, Dr. King's organization, I was involved in the housing demonstrations. And because I was white, on many occasions helped to identify the march routes into the particular communities because it was safe for me to mm. do that with two or three colleagues, you know, where there wouldn't be trees where they could throw things down mm. at us or other ways in which we would be harmed. And during those marches, when it got particularly uh, loud and frightening, Martin at that point would get us to sit down and pray. Mm. And at those points when it was most uh, difficult. Um, um, as you know, at Marquette Park, they, they burned our cars. So the the demonstrations were um, dangerous mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, fraught with all kinds of difficulties, not only physical, but um, emotional. Um, I think what is different, at least for me now, uh, is that the protests I'm involved in are different. I'm part of a group that does flash mobs. And so, for example, we did one at Old Orchard uh, around the ch children who were detained. And it's you're trained in a kind of drill, you know, like a drill team. And you just sort of show up, walk around. At some point, uh, the leader will signal, and then you will go into your particular sort of dance form, drill form, mm -hmm. and then you'll we'll hold up a sign, and then we disperse. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any uh, encouragement to engage with police. There isn't any encouragement to be at all connected to the crowd. It's a kind of performance, but it mm -hmm. is, in mm -hmm. fact, um, another way of making a mm -hmm. statement in public places, uh, and we've done it in several places in the city. I think the other thing, uh, the the number of uh, young people and older people, it's a highly diverse group. You know, I'm one of the older ones, but there are young teenagers, there are parents, there are men and women, uh, there are people from various cultural and diverse mm -hmm. backgrounds. Fascinating. Yeah. So that it doesn't take long, right? But yeah, a flash. A flash lasts. Yeah, five or six minutes. Minutes. Yeah, yeah. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the days of um, Dr. King, did did they have to get permits to do these demonstrations? Yes, uh, we got permits, and sometimes we did, and sometimes we didn't. Mm -hmm. But for the big ones, we you know we got permits to mm -hmm. to march and walk. For the flash mobs, we just show up. You're in and out too, We're too quickly. Out. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you're an ordained minister. Kind of what led you into that? I haven't thought about that, oh. but, but no, it's a, it's a good question. I think that as a, as a clinical psychologist, that many of the answers um, that I had didn't seem to make a lot of sense to the communities in which I was mm -hmm. working, primarily African-American communities on the South Side. And as I listened uh, more carefully to some of the spiritual questions and spiritual concerns, um, I decided to explore it. I didn't know at that time that I was going to go directly into the ministry. But um, a lot of the answers that uh, were not part of my earlier life made sense to me through you know, the study of theology and scripture and the connection between faith and justice and the language of faith and justice is embedded in the community in which I live and work uh, and the clergy uh, with whom I associate. So the language of faith is the language of organizing for me. Mm. 
explain a little more about that? The language of faith as yeah, a form so, of organizing. Yeah, so that you know we can talk about logical levels, right? At the level of you know behavior, identity, mission, vision, spirit, mm -hmm. um, and so at the level uh, of spirit of what does it mean to care about and be connected to something beyond yourself, mm -hmm. and how is that the impetus or motivation for the action that you're involved in? And you make those choices out of a belief and a connection to something larger than yourself, mm -hmm. or at least that's what's true for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This week, I'm I'm going. Um, I did my program, my additional program at the Center for the Study of Religions at Harvard, and I'm going back there to talk about a project that I did on art that heals from nine different faith traditions, mm -hmm. poetry and art and music. And so one of the things that has become a big part of my life is the arts is the language of the divine. So the use of music and poetry and art, both visual and representational art, uh, for healing at the physical, psychological, and spiritual mm -hmm. level is how I think about my work and the training and the workshops I do. So do you say, say more about that than the arts, music, poetry, language of the divine? Are you incorporating that into your your ministry, into your, let us say, preaching? Because I don't know. Into my preaching, uh, yeah. Certainly into my preaching, certainly into my workshops and training. Um, I've done a series of workshops on self-care using um, using clay, using music, mm -hmm. using poetry, using dance, using sound as vehicles of healing. And I've done a lot of research on the impact of each one of those on the physical and psychological mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that was the project that I had created at Harvard, which was these nine faith traditions and their art, music, and poetry. And then that project was a traveling installation mm. that went to hospitals across the country. Oh. Um, and then they're now continuing that, that project. So did, did Harvard ask you to come and create this program? Um, had you been, I don't know you as well as Catherine, does, <laughs> so I need to get to know you a little better. You're mm. so interesting. And so did you become, you were a clinical psychologist first, and then yeah. you became minister. A, a minister. And then I went to Harvard as a senior research fellow okay. at the Center for the Study of World Religions. Ah. And um, I both took additional curriculum at the Divinity School. It's across the street. Um, and then uh, we had project, and this was the project that I developed as part of my fellowship there. Mm -hmm. Has that been in widespread use? Um, well, it, it's been to um, 12 hospitals. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a period of time that I didn't. We were not in communication, so I I don't know about that. But what I do know about you is that you come up with these incredible programs, this, this vision, and then it 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 becomes something. It be, takes on a large life, like a traveling exhibition or. The uh, what what you sent me recently the pine, women pioneers yeah and and I know there are other things of that sort could you give us some more examples yeah I, I guess that I, I want to say before we go uh, and if it is that is that Catherine is someone who puts wheels on other people's dreams and she was extremely important to me 
and valuable in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. That's lovely. Do you want to share? Quite a metaphor. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I agree with you totally. Yes. You know, Catherine was my faculty mentor when I was going for my master's degree here at DePaul. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And that's how we became acquainted. And after my degree, continued to stay in touch. And, and we, um, we began to talk about women's issues, and, and this podcast is a result of that. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm really interested to know, you said something about, or maybe you said it, Catherine, about ideas that come to you and then you turn them into larger-than-life projects. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's any way for you to iterate the process that it takes to go through to make that happen, because I'm thinking that many of our listeners have terrific ideas yes. and they get stuck yes, and they don't know what to do with them. Yes. Could you talk more about that? I will, but let me just say something about that first. Whenever someone says something to me like, oh, you know, Patricia, you've done this wonderful thing. And then I'll say, oh, yes, and this is how I did it. And I go make a small chunk it, and then they can see that they can do it also. Mm-hmm. Um, I've preached on I don't see humility as a value. I think it's important to uh, be able to talk about in a small chunk anything that one does in order to share it with others. Mm-hmm. And uh, because um, anything can be modeled, and we can, uh, we can carry it out ourselves. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> to your question, um, Catherine was asking me in, uh, about the project I'm currently engaged in here at DePaul. I've been uh, very concerned about issues l- lately of racism and discrimination and gender increase in anti-Semitism um, and chaos and um, it just was troubling me, and, and also in the age of Trump, um, I, I was just deeply, deeply troubled, and so started to think about what could I learn, what could I understand, you know, the language of linguistics of naming, am I, he, she, it, what, you know, and I, I didn't understand it, and I felt out of touch and disconnected, mm-hmm. and so it was important for me, it was painful to not, not be able to to understand or work with it. And so based on that, um, I decided that I had to learn. I had to learn and understand for myself. And with anything that I'm involved in, I think about how does it get shared out? How do we pass it on? Mm -hmm. Um, So um, uh, Lourdes Torres, who is a professor here in ethnic studies, teaches a course on um, third, basically third world studies. And so I asked if I could go to her class. And so I'm reading all of these amazing things. I, I weep every day, every day I'm weeping. And I'm creating a curriculum for foundation uh, senior program officers and executive directors of nonprofit organizations, about 20, to go through a program that she offers. And then by extension, a next level of mid-level uh, program directors in nonprofit organizations, minority organizations, who would go through a similar training 
and then carry it out with their participants. And then by extension, they would uh, develop projects around social justice connected to what they're teaching and training and basically creating a movement. Um, so it begins with, I must say, it begins with pain. You know, you know what started with pain, couldn't sleep, worried, uh, had to learn more, understand it. Um, how do I share it out? Uh, how do we develop action around it? And then how do we measure to see if we're having some impact on the community? So that's how it evolves from inside of me. Um, and I don't do it by myself. I mean, I called Catherine and I said, I'm trying to do this. What do you think? Um, so I go to people who I believe think, you know, in her case about curriculum and social justice or people who are executive directors of nonprofits or people I know in the foundation world to get their input and engage them in manifesting this project, which I'm engaged in right now. Does that make sense to you? It certainly does. Yeah. At the same time, for someone who doesn't think that way, it makes me wonder, is there any way to help that sort of a person who, who wants to do something? You know, who knows that there are there are there are projects or or um, there are activities that would help be for the greater good, but they just don't know how to get started. What you're saying is that you you work through the ideas, you talk with other people, and then you talk with other organizations or others that can help you share this out in the world. Yes, exactly. Is that right? But I start with the pain, and then I go talk to people about what I'm feeling, thinking, and um, ask for their ideas. You know, what's possible? Where where can I go and learn? I mean, I, I looked for several sources before I got to Lourdes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where can I learn about it? Where can I understand it? Uh, and then the end for me is always the community, is always the neighborhood, mm -hmm. is always... Um, I had done a project early on was called From 200 to 2000, where I worked with 200 Latinas on their own self-care, which then they carried out, and it was moved to 2000 in terms mm -hmm. of their capacity to do that. So it's always that vision of, you know, being part of a community. You know, I, uh, maybe it's cliched, but I don't think so. It takes a village. Yes. Um, and so that's my intention or need or desire with anything I do. Right, and, and as you've said, from the time you were a very young woman, th there's been this need in you to express and help others and share it with other communities. I think having that relationship with Dr. King uh, and um, his modeling and mentoring uh, made help me move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And he, um, you know, and as women in the organization, he talked about the power and significance of those of us who are women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he said, I was a woman warrior. And I was telling Catherine one of, the, one of the days I was at the Westside Christian Parish, which was where the office was, um, and I was outside. Um, and I was, it was all, it had been all destroyed by uh, riots and it was just dirt. And I was kicking the dirt. And I didn't realize that Martin came out. I didn't know that he'd come and came behind me and he came up to me and he said you will make this bloom again right you're a woman warrior <laughs> so yes i think it's it, that expectation it's it's amazing and it it also takes guts 
to ask for what you know is right and should be out in the open. So you must be a very gutsy person. Mm. Oh, <laughs> she is, I would say. Yes. You, you, don't, you wouldn't characterize yourself that way. No. 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 I wouldn't. I would just say, um, um, I ask, I, I'm a good people picker, as you can see by my friend Catherine. Um, and uh, I go for help. Yes. You know, I don't know how to do this. I don't understand it. Um, but I go for help. Mm-hmm. I would like to have you talk a little bit about, about aging. Because uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're 72, yeah. correct? And what is, do you think about aging? What does it mean to you at this point in your life? I think my next project <laughs> will probably have something to do with aging. Um, I'm Call me. um i i have high blood pressure and um um i have been invited to do some work in london and ireland and um, japan and various projects with people that i would like to collaborate with um and i don't think i can do it Mm. i don't think i do it because my blood pressure spikes suddenly Mm. and um you know i just I, I don't, so I feel that sense of limitation. These are mm. projects that I would be, you know, really excited to do. And, um, you know, so it's, this, so it's a, a marker of limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm learning as much as I can about it. On the other hand, I can't commit as easily um, to what I would have committed to before. Um, also, um, people don't recognize me. And I find that very uh, disconcerting. I asked Catherine if I looked different. She said, you have less hair. <laughs> I still have a lot of hair. But um, um, so, the, you know, sort of not being recognized and knowing, you know, sort of what, how do I look like, what do I look like? Um, there's, a, there's a story about a hippopotamus and she sees a prima ballerina, and um, the, she decides to get a little phone recorder and toe shoes, and she dances and dances. And she, her friend, the lion and the monkey, uh, she tells them to invite all the creatures of the forest to come. Um, and they come, and it's not a very good performance. And her friends, they feel sad, and they say to her, oh, we're so sorry. And she says, oh, no, no, the performance was for them but the dancing was for me. <laughs> and so that is certainly part of the aging process for me, that, that most of the things that I do have to do with this sort of um, internal understanding of how it makes me feel or mm-hmm. what I do about it. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot more time alone than I did, and um, uh, I, I covet. I don't get enough time alone. Uh, so that is certainly a factor in in aging um and then i'm invited to a lot of funerals and Mm. as a member of the clergy you know i do a lot of funerals so that sense of loss and how we deal with loss um i'm collecting poetry now on uh, issues of loss to send to friends but also Mm. to have put together this collection Mm. of poems and then i think i'm going to look at at painting, oh. um, I haven't I haven't started that yet, but I've been collecting the the poetry, oh. um, broad range of poetry, 
both from the states and other places. Right? But um, uh, and then you know, and, and thinking about what can I do in this situation of loss? You know, what can I do when when someone loses a spouse? Um, I have a very large samovar for my great grandmother, and so I show up with a samovar. You know, and for people who might not know what that is, what? Um, it's it's for making tea. It's a very large uh, metal thing with two spouts on it, um, and uh, and it's a old-fashioned, very large, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, Tea thing. Mm-hmm. Tea thing. Mm-hmm. Tea thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Gail has given me the sign that this 30 minutes has flown by. Okay. So uh, any last words you would like to, to leave us with today? For our listeners. Maybe speaking to the younger generations. Yeah. Um, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that anything is possible. And that all you need is a dream and friends and resources. My first husband who died, Al Raby, who was a leader in the Chicago Civil Rights Mm -hmm. Movement, would say to me every day when I got home, Patty, where have your feet been today? Where have your feet been? And so I think the question to ask yourself every day is, where have your feet been today? Mm. This was wonderful, Patty. I learned a lot. Well, thank you for being with us today, Patty. Um, And listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts on Facebook at Women Over 70. Ask questions, add to the conversation. Tell us what topics you'd like to hear more about and become an active participant in our community. Invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to join in. Our goal is to create an intergenerational conversation And you can access our weekly podcast Wednesdays at womenover70.com. And if you know a woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us on our website. And thanks to the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at DePaul University for use of the recording space. See you next week on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.